want to read just now from Mark's Gospel, from Mark chapter 15, and reading from verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was about the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said. But he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Let's come and pray. Father, we just want to thank you that in that moment of Jesus' apparent seeming greatest weakness, that even in that moment, that man, that centurion, had his eyes opened to the glory of Christ. And Lord, how we pray tonight that we may just see your glory and that we might know how rightly We should respond to this. Be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now tonight I'm going to do something I'm a little bit wary of doing. That is I'm going to center in on the suffering that that Christ endured for us on the cross. And And I'm wary of this for one reason really and one reason only. That is that I would hate in any kind of voyeuristic way to cheapen the suffering of Christ by in some way sensationalizing it. So let's be clear. Every time we come near to the cross of Jesus Christ, we should do so 
with our heads bowed low in worship. At the thought that such as us should witness the Lord of glory die. But I'm going to look at this tonight because I feel that from this passage there emerges an important spiritual principle with a real challenge that can actually only be properly seen in the light of Christ's suffering. So let's look first then at the cruelty of the cross. Starting off at the very base level with his physical suffering. But let's make no mistake, as Jesus died on that cross, he suffered one of the cruelest, most barbaric, one of the most physically horrific deaths that has ever been devised by man. And no matter how realistically we we try to portray this, for example, in Mel Gibson's famous The Passion of the Christ, yet the facts are that we will never really begin to plumb the sheer depths of physical agony that Jesus suffered there. I mean, just think even of the, the preliminaries, the flogging that Jesus endured wasn't some mild chastisement. No, because the the whip that the Romans used for this purpose was basically a leather cat of nine tails with pieces of sharpened bone and stone and flint or lead embedded into the ends. And if this flogging, say, had been given by the Jews, then their law would have limited this to 39 blows. But Roman law recognized no limit. Their practice was to continue this flogging until their victim's back was open to the bone. And it's far from unusual for someone to die on the receiving end of this, to die from shock that was caused by this, without going even any further. So that then explains why Jesus was so weakened here, that he was unable to carry his own cross. And incidentally, can you imagine the sheer agony of that? That cross would have weighed around 40 pounds. So think of that. 40 pounds of rough, heavy wood rubbing against a back, torn to pieces. And then the crown of thorns. I suppose I never really thought about what that meant at one time. I maybe even viewed it as a kind of poetic extra. Until one year, Elaine made one as a kind of part of a flower display we had in a church one Easter time. And I tell you, after I jagged myself on that once or twice, I handled that thing with real care. I kept it for years, don't know what happened, but I lost it. But the, the thorns that Elaine used, though, weren't anywhere near as vicious as the thorns that Jesus endured, the thorns of the acanthus plant. And that's what was probably used to make his crown of thorns. But can you imagine having that pressed and forced right into your scalp? I mean, the scalp's a part of the body that that bleeds easily and profusely. So just think about that with the heat and the dust and the flies of, of Jerusalem all around. But all of this, though, And all the various other preliminaries, all of them, pale into insignificance in light of the actual sheer physical agony that Jesus endured on that cross. In fact, I don't know, I've probably mentioned this before, but anyway, it might interest you to know that the Romans considered crucifixion such a a terrible death that it was actually illegal to crucify a Roman citizen. No Roman, they decreed, should ever have to endure 
such a death as this. And as for the Jews, well, although stoning, which was their usual method of execution, seems pretty gruesome to us, and it does, yet by the time of Jesus, it actually wasn't quite as bad as we imagine, because by this time it was used very sparingly. And the custom was that before the actual stoning itself took place, that first the victim was to be knocked unconscious. Now exactly how they were knocked unconscious, I think I'll spare you those details. But then after that, the first large stone that was thrown was to be aimed at the heart. And that was to try and ensure that death would come as quickly and painlessly as possible. But you know, even with this background, even in the harsh, cruel age that they lived in, even the Jews were horrified by the Roman institution of crucifixion. So again, they brought in various limitations and regulations to try and make this monstrosity a little bit more palatable, just that little bit more humane. And, and one of these was the, the sponge with wine vinegar that was offered to Jesus. Again, at one time, I thought this was just a, a little further minor act of cruelty that was heaped upon Jesus. For here's a man suffering from blood loss, hanging, dying in the, the heat that we can imagine of that midday sun there, obviously severely dehydrated. So what do they do then? Well, there's another cruel act of mercy. They offer him what was really the most disgusting thing we can think of to drink. That's the way I thought. But you know, in fact, this wine vinegar was actually much more to their taste than to ours. And mixed in with this would be an early painkiller. That's what they did that was intended to blunt the edge of Jesus' pain. So what was it then about death on the cross that moved even Christ's hard-hearted enemies to try to do something to lessen his pain, which incidentally was refused by Jesus as he had to face the challenge before him with a clear mind. Well, to begin with, as the cross of Christ was dropped, as it was, into a hole in the ground, the impact would mean that straight away almost every joint in his body would be thrown out of place, would be dislocated. Now, one dislocation is excruciating. Can you imagine? Multiple dislocation. And in addition, this would lead to two other byproducts. First of all, it would lead to cramp. For with his body held in the position that it was due to these dislocations and those nails in his hands and feet, Jesus would, would suffer a kind of cramp over his whole body. Now, most of us have suffered cramp in one form or another, in one part of our body or another. And it is so painful. But can you imagine suffering cramp all over your body for hour after hour and being able to do nothing to relieve it? The second thing that the impact of the cross and these resulting dislocations would produce would be Asphyxiation, well, nearly get there, really strangulation. 
For you see, crucifixion was devised in, in such a way as to, to leave the person who was crucified hanging in a way that slowly, very slowly, meant that they would die because of an inability to raise their body and to breathe in sufficient oxygen. But can you imagine a more tormenting death than that? Slowly, over a period of hours, fighting to get each gasp of breath, and moment by moment, gradually and slowly, increasingly, failing to do so. Now let's be clear, we will never be able to really understand what Jesus Christ went through us for, for us on that cross. But that maybe at least gives us a little bit of insight into the bare bones here of what physically he suffered. But of course, physical cruelty wasn't the be-all and end-all of what Jesus went through on the cross. In fact, I'm actually convinced that this was probably the aspect of his suffering that he found it easiest to bear. Much worse was the emotional pain for a start that he had to go through. For you see, we know that Jesus was uniquely sensitive. We know that love and and compassion were rooted into the core of his being. We know that relationships were prized by Jesus. Well, then think what it must have meant for him to be faced by the desertion of his disciples, to be faced by the malicious, vindictive glee of the Roman hierarchy as at last they've managed to get him sentenced to death. And then, faced by the mockery of these Roman soldiers as they dressed him in imperial purple and as they put this fake crown cruelly on his head and paraded him around. All these things, which in themselves are symbols of the sinful, debased state of man, I believe would have hurt Jesus far more emotionally than the physical agonies that were heaped on him. But, not even that, not even Christ's emotional suffering brings us close to the pinnacle of his suffering on that cross. For Jesus' greatest suffering, of course, was his spiritual suffering. That depth of suffering that's revealed in that anguished cry from the cross Mark 15.34, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this terrible question was one, of course, that Jesus actually knew the answer to. Because he knew that God his Father had forsaken him. That his Father had turned his back on him. Because Jesus on that cross took upon himself the burden of our sin. Man's rebellion against him. That which began with Adam and that continues with us today as we continue to make the choice. That choice to go our way rather than God's way. To do what we want rather than what God wills. Sin, that which separates us from a holy God who hates sin, hates evil. Sin that leaves us under the judgment of a God who created us to love us, but who cannot know relationship with us while we're in our sin. 
But you see, Jesus took upon himself the burden of sin. And as he did this, as our sin was laid upon him, then so God, the holy God, the God who hates sin, could no longer look upon him. And this was what hurt Jesus most of all as he hung on the cross. That he, the one who had lived his life for God, who had lived his life with God, who'd lived an eternity of perfect fellowship within the Godhead, that he, in this moment of his greatest need, would be separated from him. This was the real pinnacle of Christ's suffering. This was the true agony of the cross for Jesus Christ. And yet, this was the price Christ was willing to pay. For you and me. This was the price he was willing to pay. In order to bring us back to that place again. Where by faith in him. We can again know. Love and forgiveness from God. A new life of fellowship with God. So what was man's reaction? No brother I think. What is man's reaction? So often. To this incredible opportunity for new life so dearly won for us. Well, let's look at one of the most notable examples of this here as we look, move on to look at the callousness of the soldiers. And we find that the crux of this, I believe, for me anyway, in, in Mark 15, 24, where it says, And they crucified him, Div- uh, dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. You know, for me, this is actually one of the most disturbing verses in the New Testament, and particularly in the, the story of the cross. Because you can at least, to some degree, understand, you might not agree with it, but you can understand the vindictiveness of these Jewish leaders who felt that their position was threatened by Jesus. You can understand a little bit where Judas was coming from, motivated by greed and selling his Lord for a handful of silver. You can understand Pilate. This man in his weakness and fear caught up in the middle of something that he couldn't control and so washing his hands of the whole situation. But here, what we see here, this kind of callous brutality, this is really in a way almost beyond comprehension. And John in his gospel, in John 19, 23 and 24, he gives us a a fuller account of this, and he shows us how it ties in with the Old Testament prophecy of Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, Because John shares that when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it! They said to one another, let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So you see, here, these soldiers, after they'd nailed Jesus to the cross and after they'd hoisted him up into that agonizing position, well, they then sat down and took things easy. 
The main task was over. Their only responsibility now was to guard him and the others with him until death came in case anyone did to try a rescue mission. Very much a routine procedure because nobody would. And just to while away the time, they began to divide up his clothing, something that was seen as a legitimate right of the execution, as a kind of first century park of the job. And it isn't something that would have taken too long to do. For at that time, the time of Jesus, the average Jewish clothing consisted of a, a headdress, shoes, a linen undergarment, a, clo- a coat which hung down below the knees, and a cloak. And they did it. Everything went smoothly enough. Each one took what they wanted, made that decision, until they came to the undergarment. Now you see, we're told that this was in one piece, and that actually indicates that it was a particularly fine piece of clothing. For the undergarment that was worn at that time by the average man in the street actually consisted in four four pieces of, of cloth that had been sewn together. So you see, there's a dilemma here. Each one of them wants this fairly expensive piece of clothing. And they know that it would greatly decrease its value. And so it would be a terrible waste to tear it apart. The way they decide to get round this is to throw dice with whoever fortune seems to smile upon being the new owner. Now I'm sure at one level, and I'm sure it did seem very sensible to them. Seemed fairly routine, innocent even as far as these battle-hardened Roman soldiers were concerned. That is, until you remember that right behind their backs as they threw their dice was the sight of three men. Three men who had just been so brutally crucified. And until you remember that ringing in their ears as they threw their dice There must have been the moans and groans of pain, the desperate gasps for breath, as these men slowly and agonizingly gave up their life, with one of them being God's own beloved son. So it might have seemed sensible, it might have seemed routine, it might even for them have seemed to be fairly innocent. But that doesn't alter the fact that what they did here was almost unbelievably callous. Perhaps so at this point, although we feel you know, suitably horrified by this, perhaps we take comfort in the thought that, that nothing like this happens in our day. But is that really so? For remember that in essence what these men did was turn their back on Jesus. And ignore him as he died. I want to ask you, how many are there this Easter? 2,000 years now, over that, since Christ came and gave his life for us. How many men and women are there who still today, on this day, ignore the Lord who died for them? who maybe don't play dice at the foot of the cross, 
but who just use Easter as an excuse for having a holiday, having a good time, who enjoy Easter eggs and hot crust buns, but who never even give a thought to what or who these are intended to point to and symbolize and remind us of. How many are there? Far, far too many. The same casual, callous, indifferent attitude to Jesus Christ is still around today. Mankind, callous mankind, has not really changed. But maybe our comfort today, though, comes in that all this applies apparently to those who are outside of Christ. And so it's got little, if any, relevance to those who by faith now are his. Well, if that's what you're thinking, then maybe it's time to move on to our final point, And that is the principle. Remember I, I said right at the beginning that I believe that from this passage that we'd be able to uncover an important spiritual principle, one with a real challenge. Well, here it is. First in the words of, of Tom Houston. He says that the most terrible thing about these men is that they took the clothing of Jesus, but from him himself, they took nothing. They were satisfied with his physical possessions, but they ignored his principles. Now, do you get what that's saying? What I believe it's saying is that, that what these men here represent is someone who wants Jesus for what physically they can get from Jesus but who's got little or no interest in the spiritual principles that lie at the heart of who Jesus Christ actually is. But I want to ask you, is there anything like this around in the church of today? I think maybe there is. Maybe there is. In the Christian who's always looking to be blessed by God, but who's never really all that interested in serving him, and being a blessing. And I think perhaps we also see this in the Christian who seems to look upon God always as first and foremost a problem solver. I have to say this is an attitude that seems to be pretty widespread. In fact, sometimes I listen to Christians and I wonder, you know, have I really got it wrong? For, for I've always thought that once we were saved by God's grace in Christ, that it was then our job to serve God rather than vice versa. Now here, I want to say, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that God doesn't solve problems. I'm not saying that faith doesn't make a big and real practical difference to our lives. But rather what I'm trying to say is that the issue here is really one of focus. Once we become Christians, our focus should be on serving the Lord. Our focus should be on getting to know him better. It should be in every situation that we face in life, seeking to glorify him and grow in the depth of our relationship with him. Now you see, as we do that, then so often along the way, along the journey, God will solve our problems. He won't always do it in the way that we want or according to our time scale, but he will. And when God does leave us to face up to and to deal with our problems for however long a time, then so often, I believe that's because 
the potential for growth and challenge in our lives as we turn to God in this situation. The potential for us to bring glory to God in this situation. That outweighs any problems we have. But if our focus is on our problems, if our focus is on God getting us out of whatever difficulty we're in, if that's first, if it's on our lives being easy and our lives being carefree, if that is our focus, then we are superficial, ungrateful Christians. But maybe the best example of the Christian who, to some extent, maybe follows in the footsteps of these Roman soldiers is that the out-and-out nominal Christian. And in an evangelical context, probably the best parallel here is the Christian who is born again, who's been saved, but they really don't want to know much more than that. They're not really interested in living out their faith in their life and exploring and applying the truths and principles of the Christian faith day by day. Rather for them, their Christianity has been downgraded to really being a ticket to some kind of Christian club that we call the church. But you see, this kind of what's really fleshly, carnal Christianity, a Christianity that's devoid of hunger for God and a desire for the things of God, the things of the Spirit, this just cannot please God. It doesn't please God. It's not really living the Christian life. So, you know, I hope if you are a Christian, you can see that we can't look at this casual, callous brutality of these Roman soldiers in a detached way. We can't think it's nothing to do with us because it is all too easy for us to slip into what is fundamentally a very similar attitude. That is to value the physical above the spiritual, to look for what we can get out of Christ rather than what should be our response to the cross, to all that he suffered, to look to see what we can give to him, to fall at his feet in adoration and ask, Lord, how can we serve you, the one who gave everything for us? But you know, if you're here tonight and you're not yet a Christian, then tonight there's only one way, only one way for you to ensure that you are not in the same bracket as these Roman soldiers. There's only one way to ensure that you're not part of a cruel, disinterested world. And that is to say yes tonight to Jesus Christ. To say yes. To accept him as the Son of God who on the cross died for your sin as he died in your place. That's the only way. Don't turn your back on him. Don't ignore him. Accept him. Accept the life and joy and peace tonight that he alone can bring you. Let's pray together. Father, tonight we want to thank you for just the real glory of Easter for all who believe. And Father, we thank you for what an Easter faith calls us to. And it calls us to give everything for the Jesus who died for us.
It calls us to give ourselves, to love him and to serve him. Oh, Father, help us tonight to respond with a true and a living faith, a real spiritual hunger and desire. Help us to respond in that way to our Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen.